1: Hello and welcome to New Books Network in Latin American Studies, a podcast in the New Books Network. I am Kenneth Sanchez, one of the hosts of the channel. Today I will be speaking with Marilena Garcia about her wonderful new book, Gastropolitics and the Spectre of Race, Stories of Capital, Culture and Coloniality in Peru. Marilena Garcia is an Associate Professor in the Comparative History of Ideas at the University of Washington in Seattle. Garcia received her PhD in Anthropology at Brown University and has been a Mellon Fellow at the Wesleyan University and Tufts University. Her first book, Making Indigenous Citizens, Identities Development and Multicultural Activism in Peru, examined indigenous and intercultural politics in Peru in the immediate aftermath of the war between Sendero Luminoso and this state. Thank you, Marilena, for joining us here today.
0: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's really lovely to be in conversation with you.
1: It's great to have you here, Marilena, as I mentioned, and in your words, uh, and I'm quoting directly from the book here, this book, Gastropolitics and the Spectre of Race, explores the dark side of the celebration of Peruvian gastronomy, of contemporary narratives of social inclusion, while leaving room for alternative readings and possibilities opened up by Peru's gastronomic revolution. It critically evaluates uh, the claims made about, by the gastronomic realm of unity and the end of racial antagonism. And it also tracks the emergence of Peruvian gastropolitics understanding it as a biopolitical and aesthetic set of practices that reinscribe dominant racial and gender orders. It is a deeply interesting book. It is very well written. It's different in that way. And I thought I was very engaging and obviously an important contribution to Peruvian studies, social studies, and racial studies as a whole, and also gastropolitics, which is a very interesting uh, field as well. But perhaps to begin, Maria Elena, you can tell us a little bit about yourself and the path that led you to write this book.
0: Sure. Um, Thanks so much. There's so much to say, but I guess maybe I'll start by saying that I was born in Lima, Peru, um, but we left the country when I was just five years old. My family moved to Venezuela, then to Puerto Rico, and then to Mexico City, and eventually to the United States um, when I was 14 years old. And I think that that move to the U.S., um, it was maybe one of the most significant moments in my life. It happened so quickly. My dad, I remember, came home and said, "You know, in two weeks we're moving." So it was a very, very um, abrupt uh, change. And it was the year of 1985. Um, it was the same year that the war in Peru arrived most forcefully in Lima, um, where most of my family still lived. And before that year, we would return to Peru every summer to spend, you know, usually two or three months with my grandparents, aunts and uncles, cousins. Um, but after 1985, we would actually not go back until the early 1990s. Um, and I was really angry about this. I was 14, you know, teenager, so uh, I was angry anyway. But um, I was very upset about this decision. Um, and it really, I think, pushed me to ask a lot of questions about the violence that was happening in the country, but also about our family. Um And it was actually shortly after that that I learned for the first time that my grandfather was actually a Quechua speaking man from Ayacucho. I had no idea that he was from from Ayacucho before this. Um, And Ayacucho is, of course, one of the highland departments that was hardest hit by the violence. Um, So I think this is a moment that really um, was significant in shaping my interests and eventually uh, my academic work, uh, which, of course, has focused on indigeneity and um, political violence. Uh, so after I made it to Brown for my Brown University for my PhD in anthropology, um, my research really focused on indigenous cultural politics in the Andes and in Peru um, primarily. Um, and in particular, I've been concerned with the violence of the recent war between the Shining Path, the MRTA, and the Peruvian state, and the various ways it shaped the lives of so many people, and I think especially indigenous people, Um so since the mid-1990s, I've spent many years working with indigenous activists and others and developing my research on the politics of language, education, and culture in the Andes. But a few years ago, and I guess I was thinking about this, I think it's been about 20 years ago now, um, I started reading more and more interested in thinking about human-non-human relations, and um, and particularly about indigenous understandings of other than human life. And I started to really immerse myself in the field of animal studies. And it was actually in this moment. I was I was in that moment. I was reading and teaching in animal studies. And I started to notice different things when I would take research trips to to Latin America, and especially when I would go to Cusco or other Andean cities like Quito. Um so, for example, I started to notice that alpacas and guinea pigs, or cuyes, as we call them in Peru, as you know, um, appeared much more frequently on menus, especially tourist menus. But I was, um, yeah, it was really interesting. But it was also how they were appearing on the menu that got my attention. I started to notice the inclusion of dishes like carpacho de alpaca, for example, um, or cuy ravioli, right? Um, so this was really different from the more traditional cuy, um, served whole, where you saw the the, the feet and the, the head. Um, and I had eaten alpaca before when I was doing dissertation fieldwork, and I remembered this is very tough meat. In carpaccio, it has, it's it, for those who don't know, it's very, very thinly sliced meat that's served raw. Um, so to make Carpaccio, the alpaca. This meat had to come from alpacas that had to be raised specifically for meat, or or certainly raised in different conditions than the more traditional context. So this started to raise a lot of questions for me, and I started to explore um, what I soon realized was this shift toward the intensification of the production of these animals. And this was um, mid two thousands or so. Um, And as I asked questions uh, from chefs and and others, um, I was asking not just about the process, but also about the particular significance of these Andean animals, why alpaca, why cuy? The more questions I asked, the more I started to hear about Novo Andina cuisine. Um, which was really interesting, which is, you know, the blending It's described as the blending of indigenous products with European techniques um, and also about the importance of the emerging gastronomic boom. So um, I remember in particular one conversation I had with a leading guinea pig researcher in Lima, and she told me that even though she and others had been working on um, Kui production for decades, I mean, since the late 1960s, it was just in the context of the gastronomic boom that Kui production was finally taking off, that the research was finally being taken seriously, um, which was really interesting to me. And I learned later um, also that in the competitive world of high-end cuisine, you have to distinguish yourself in order to make a mark, uh, especially globally, right? And especially, I think, chefs from the Global South. and indigenous products, uh, including indigenous animals like the alpaca and the cuy, were central in marking high-end cuisine in Peru as Peruvian. So um, maybe just as a final little um, part of this response, um, I, I want to I say that I never expected to write a book about food. Um, when I started this research, my focus was really on exploring, as I mentioned, what I saw as the intensification in the production of Andean animals, like, like cuyas and alpacas. Um, I really wanted to think more about the move toward more industrialized forms of animal husbandry and the impacts of this process on indigenous relations with their animals, but also on the animals themselves. Um, but as I heard more and more and more about Peru's food revolution, I really started to shift course. And I was fascinated. I was fascinated in particular because the more I learned, the more I realized that this revolution, this gastronomic revolution was directly responding to the violence of the past. Um, it was clearly a project focused on remaking the nation, reimagining Peru as a cosmopolitan, modern, inclusive country that was, of course, welcoming into tourists and global high-end culinary destination. That um, it was not that place of violence and poverty and terror that it had been for the past twenty years. Yes, definitely.
1: And we're going to talk about more about that uh, when we go on about the book. But before we go into that, I think will be it will be very valuable to our listeners to know a little bit about the context the historical background of your book uh, the gastronomic boom you know post-conflict well the idea of a post-conflict society improve perhaps you can tell us briefly about this context very briefly about the historical background as well
0: sure of course um I'm thinking maybe it would be useful to start with a very, very brief note about the internal armed conflict in Peru for those listeners who are not familiar with the country. Um, So very quickly, this conflict lasted officially between 1980 and 2000. Uh, And there are many fantastic works detailing various dimensions of this horrific conflict. But um, quickly, The Shining Path, or Sendero Luminoso, uh, a Maoist-Leninist-Marxist organization declared war on the Peruvian state, Uh, and began its armed struggle in 1980 in the Highland Department of Ayacucho. Um, And I think it's important to note that this was not an indigenous revolutionary movement, which despite the fact that there are many things written about this, some people still kind of uh, have that misunderstanding. Uh, And in fact, um, despite Sendero's claims to fight for Peruvian peasants and the poor, they unleashed tremendous brutality on Andean and Amazonian communities. they committed unspeakable acts of, of violence against anyone they saw as in any way against their revolution. Um, state forces, um, as expected, responded with equal, if not more, force. Um, it's just really a brutal, brutal war. Um, according to the Peruvian Truth and Reconciliation Commission, approximately 70,000 people were killed. Um, but of course, this number does not include the thousands and thousands of people who were displaced, tortured, disappeared, and, and so much more. Um Another part of this that's really of the story that's really important is that 75%, again, these are estimates that come from the, the TRC. 75% of those killed in this war were indigenous peoples. They were both Andean or Amazonian, but they were indigenous peoples. And this is really key um, in that. I mean, to my mind, it's it's really crucial because in, in this way we can see that this war perpetuated racialized and colonial histories of marginalization and violence, which means that as in so many other parts of the world, actually, indigenous peoples suffer disproportionately. Um, There's a ton, you know, there's much more I could say. But for the sake of brevity, I'll just note that officially the conflict ends in the year 2000 with then President Alberto Fujimori. And this is a very strange moment to be talking about this. um, Uh, Alberto Fujimori flees the country after uh, accusations of of corruption and human rights abuses. Um, A a transitional government comes into power, um, led by Valentin Paniagua, and signaling sort of this moment signals the beginning of a transition toward democracy and peace and away from the violence of the recent past. And as the TRC begins its work um, in 2001, uh, it's interesting because the um, transitional government established the commission as a truth commission, but incoming president Alejandro Toledo in 2001 added reconciliation to that name um, and to the title, to the commission's title and to its mission. And this is really important, I think, for our story, for the the, the story of the gastronomic revolution, because the theme of reconciliation is central in this, in this new kind of moment. Um, and the politics of memory are too, as this revolution is one that um, looks forward right, to a future of prosperity and cosmopolitan modernity. And it is certainly a, a gastronomic sort of, the, the revolution is certainly one that does not dwell on the violence of the past. So this is kind of the, the backstory against which the gastronomic revolution emerges and which I argue it's it's responding to um, and here, I think it's it's very important to bring in chef Gastón Acurio, who is credited with spearheading the gastronomic revolution in Peru. He's really a central figure. This is what Kenneth, you and I were just talking about. He's a central figure in the history of Peru over the last three decades. Um, he comes from a very prominent political family. And after spending years in Spain and France training to be a chef, he returns to Peru in the mid-1990s, um, In the context of post-war reconciliation dynamics, he begins to work actually quite explicitly to remake Peru, to reposition the country globally. Um, But significantly, he also works to sell his vision of a new, peaceful, modern nation to Peruvians themselves, After decades of war, violence, racial and sexual terror and economic precarity, Acurio, I think, brilliantly moves Peruvians away from this discourse of violence um, by emphasizing the possibilities offered by our food. And in the context of this politics of reconciliation, there's this sort of renewed moment of possibility. And Acurio deploys Peruvian cuisine as central to rebranding the nation by emphasizing, I think, two main dimensions. He talks a lot about food as a social weapon, um, which is really important, and also food as representative of the fusion of all races and cultures that make up. He works with publishing houses, um, different, you know, ministries, business students, universities, and especially with PROM Peru, the country's tourism arm, to highlight the power of, of food. Um, so this is this is part of a move toward branding the nation, right? Nation branding, which there's a, also a lot of literature on this, um, and this includes online marketing campaigns. Like uh, I think the inaugural one was uh, Peru, Peru Nebraska. This video that that launched in twenty. 20- which is the launch of Marca Perú and everything? It is fantastic. I mean, if uh, I wish we could, we could spend the whole episode talking about that. Um, I would, I would encourage those listening to just you know Google Peru nebraska video, and it is, it is so interesting um, and says a lot about this moment, right, of, of nation branding. Um, but it's also this, this moment uh, um, of marketing Peru. It, it also includes a lot of documentaries about Acurio and Peruvian food as a social weapon and as this beautiful fusion. Um, also television shows showcasing the best of Peruvian products, producers, and cuisine. And of course, the culinary festival Mistura, which was a yearly festival that um, at its peak had almost half a million visitors, which was really uh, astounding. Um, so at this moment, Peruvian cuisine begins to get noticed at global events and articles about Peruvian food begin to appear in magazines like you know, Food & Wine or Gourmet or Condenas Travel, these very elite um, food magazines. Um, politically, this moment of national resurgence is narrated as a gastronomic revolution. Um, in fact, I think one of the first books by Mirko Lauer is called, you know, The Peruvian Gastronomic Revolution. Um, so it was interesting, this this, this framing. Um, but it's really important to say that this has always been narrated as a forward-looking, neoliberal, happy revolution. Right. And while it appears to be inclusionary, especially of those the nation had most marginalized and especially those who had been most affected by the violence, um, this kind of recognition of indigenous producers, for example, or others um, is really dependent on being grateful for that recognition, tolerant of knowing your place in the social hierarchies of all. Yes.
1: Now we're going on. Talk about the book. The first thing I really wanted to ask was the concept and the idea of the book that you briefly mentioned when you were talking about yourself and how you got there. But it's really interesting to read these links between gastronomy, violence, race, capital. It's a very original way of looking into these themes, both in an academic and in a non-academic way. I also thought the way you approached it with the interludes, the first person narration and the different accounts you include in the second part of the book was very creative and engaging. you tell us a bit more about the concept of the book that you briefly mentioned before and how you decided to approach it and write it. I thought that was very interesting.
0: Thank you. Um, yes, this is a great question. Um, uh, in terms of the idea for the book, as I was mentioning earlier, it really emerged in response to what I was experiencing and learning about while I was in Peru. Um, every single trip I took helped me to see much more clearly those links between the celebration of Peruvian cuisine and the restoration of racial hierarchies in the country. Um, one of the primary concerns of the gastronomic revolution was to transform Lima into a world class culinary destination. I remember so many times people would say, you know, people come to, to Peru to go to Machu Picchu, they bypass Lima, they go straight to Cusco. The idea was to get people to stay in Lima to eat. Um, so, this project, I think, was and continues to be entangled with ideas about hygiene and order. Um, and this is connected in, in this way. In the minds of so many elites, Lima had been negatively transformed by the influx of indigenous migrants fleeing the violence in the highlands and the lowlands, for example. Um, there's this, all this talk about the Andeanization of Lima or the Cholificación right, of, of Lima. Um, so part of the work of the gastronomic revolution, in a way, was to restore the city, right, to, to, to transform it from this current space of disorder and chaos to the imagined glory of the city of kings as lima was known in colonial times which was imagined as this kind of white european city um, and it might be worth again for for those who are not familiar with 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 peru that about 80 percent of lima's population is made up of migrants or the children of migrants um, so in this context i mean i remember especially a visit to mistura um, when I was invited to join an early morning workshop for uh, all those indigenous producers who were participating in, in the festivals um, in the festival that year, this was this was amazing, this was an amazing moment for me, and I and I write about it in the book. It was um, ostensibly a workshop to support the eighty or so producers who were participating that year, and I was really really interested in what were called the um, chef producer alliances, which is where. Um, Chefs from the best restaurants in in Peru were encouraged to buy directly from producers and in that way kind of avoid middlemen and increase revenue for producers. But what I saw was incredible. The workshop, first of all, started with a clown. Um, So keep in mind that these producers have traveled from all over Peru, sometimes for days in cramped buses, just to sell their products and participate in this prestigious festival. And to be able to do that They've already had to go through a rigorous selection process and jump through many, many hoops. So in any case, they're busy and they need every minute possible to set up their stands and to prepare. But this workshop was mandatory. Like if if you wanted to sell at Mistura, you you had to participate, right? So first, the workshop started over an hour late. People were getting really anxious and upset. um, And suddenly this clown shows up and starts the workshop with a dance and a song. Um, the idea was to get producers to stand up and move and dance and, and sing along um, to get them excited. But I was so struck, right? Because usually you have clowns at children's parties, but that's not. I mean, that's that's that makes sense because so much um, often so often I would hear comparisons made between indigenous uh, producers, for example, and children. Um, so a- anyway, there was just so much going on for me when I was when I saw this this clown. Um, but then the clown leaves. And one of Mistura's organizers, who was a former minister of agriculture um, and a member of the Society for Gastronomy, uh, he took over and began to dictate the various terms of participation, including and especially emphasizing the importance of hygiene, of order, of knowing your place. Um, It was really fascinating. And at the end of the workshop, Gastón Acurio appeared and offered this rousing speech about the importance of this new moment, of the fact that the city, meaning Lima, was no longer giving its back to the country, that indigenous producers are now welcome in the city, but that there is a price to pay and norms to follow. So in the book, I actually spend some time unpacking this workshop and the minister's discourse and a speech, because I think it was just so, all of this was fascinating, really telling um, about about the revolution. But I'll just say here that this was just such a powerful and clarifying moment for me. as I stood there listening and observing, it just became incredibly clear that this gastronomic revolution was a civilizing project. I mean, I remember that. I remember very clearly being there and thinking, thinking that it was just this one more effort to civilize the other, to locate and manage the Indian. Right. Um, paternalism was just striking and it was confirmed in really disturbing ways later during an interview with the former minister of agriculture, which, again, I, I write about in the book um, it was, it was during this research trip that the centering of Lima in this project also became really interestingly clear um, for me. And this was striking because this centralism, which is, you know, again, there's there's a lot written about this and it's, it's known, this centralism in the sense that Lima, as the modern capital of Peru, is more, more important than the rural indigenous highlands and lowlands. This idea was identified explicitly by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission as part of the problem. That led to the violence of the recent years in the first place. So I was—I was really. This was a really. I think that I think that was a year 2015, and for me that was sort of like this aha moment, right? Um, but all that said, I I was still really apprehensive about writing about this dark side. You quoted you quoted me on that, um, but it's true about the dark side of this revolution, right? And Acurio, as I said, he he was and he continues to be, maybe the most loved man in Peru. Um, for so many, this, I mean, really, it's, it's so many, this celebration of food, the renewed pride in our nation, the emotional attachment to all this, it matters deeply and it is felt deeply. So, why offer a critical reading? Why dwell on the negative? Um, and this, I think, for me is particularly fraught as a Peruvian woman who lives abroad. I mean, I, I miss Peru also. You know, I miss my food and, and, and my family and like so many Peruvians. I was really invested in a way in the image of Peru that Acurio was selling to us and to the world. That Peru-Nebraska video I mentioned earlier is actually a, a great example because um, I was, I got it. I mean, everybody sent this to me and I and I was watching it and I was trying to sort of watch it critically, read it critically, but then I was laughing and I was even moved to tears at one point, right? So it's 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 really intense. Um, there's all these contradictory emotions, but um, so so anyway, so this is personal. It's a it's this book that I this is a personal story for me too. And, and as I write in the book, um, another kind of personal dimension. My brother has a Peruvian. He opened his first Peruvian restaurant in 2019, so about a year before COVID. Um, and now he actually has has two. And I want him to do well. I want to celebrate him. I'm excited for him. Uh, I want to celebrate his success which is most definitely part of the global reach of Peru's gastronomic revolution. So there are plenty of um, contradictions for me involved in this project and, and that made the writing of this both kind of fun and amazing and hard and exciting. It was just this mix of emotions. Um, but I think this is why, to go back to the question that you asked about the interludes, I think this is why I really wanted to find a different way to write about about all this. And I find, I find a way to weave in these more personal kind of reflections or, or ethnographic vignettes, and, and um, I thought the interludes would be a good way to bring in my experiences and to bring the reader closer to my field notes, even and to my feelings and my thoughts about about all of this.
1: Yes, I thought I was particularly very effective as well in in the engaging and also in the, making it a, a book with person more personality. It's very very interesting, and I really really like the the originality. It's always it felt fresh. That's always very good. Uh, going on about uh, the themes, the topics you set to explore, as you mentioned, uh, there's a lot to unpack, but I'd like to begin with something you mentioned re- recently, uh, the rearticulation of mestizaje as a narrative in this uh, revolutionary uh, gastronomic revolution. This narrative tries to cover up or rewrite uh, years of discrimination and violence, including that of the internal armed conflict. It essentially sanitizes some of the most painful chapters of Peruvian history with narratives that portray Peru and its cuisine as a consensual mixture of race. And that phrase really made a noise in my head because was, I heard consensual mixture of all races, And it's, it's pretty striking that they might consider it a project like that.
0: Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, I know. It, it, and, and if you read so many of um, Akurio's books, like especially I think it's the first big one, F- Fusion, or 500 Years of Beautiful Fusion, which has his face on the cover, that's, I mean, it, it, just read the introduction to that. It's, it's, it's incredible. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Akurio, I think, has done this brilliantly, brilliantly. Um, and very explicitly, right? Um, he said in so many interviews that he has tried to shift the meaning of mestizaje from pejorative to celebratory. Um, he's reframed Mestizaje mixture as fusion, But and he always notes this. And again, just all, all you have to do is listen to an interview or go to one of his cookbooks and you'll, you'll see this. It has to be a beautiful, consensual, harmonious, tolerant fusion. Um, and he always uses striking language to make his points. I, I remember this is like really, really clear in a recent TED talk that he gave, I think it was 2018, uh, on how cooking can change the world. And he starts that talk with a love story. Um, The children of Cantonese and Italian families, they fall in love in the streets of the port city of Callao, Peru. Their families are against their love. So the young couple moves far away to make their new home. Romance gives way to disagreement in the kitchen. Soy sauce and Parmesan cheese come into conflict. And over time, however, conflict yields to creativity. Old flavors from different worlds mix in new recipes. And for Acurio, this is how Peruvian cuisine is born a product of what he calls 500 years of beautiful fusion and of romantic and harmonious encounters among diverse people. So for Acurio, the story of colonial encounters reframed as tales of love, of differences giving way to not just tolerance but national reconciliation, this is the story of Peru. And here, I, I spent some time on the, in, in the book talking about this, because I think it's really important. Um, the sexual violence of colonial encounters is represented as a story of impossible, defiant love, even. Um, at the tasting menu for Astrid Gaston, I think this was the spring of 2018, um, it was uh, it, you, we saw that really explicitly. The menu was titled Lima Love, um, and it told the story of contemporary Peru, Um, And I remember I'm I'm actually I I got uh, I'm quoting because I I pulled it up for this because it was so striking Um, from this is from uh, the menu Lima Love from Vegas on Spring 2018. Um, Here we are celebrating without fear, thankful for being limeños, children of all the bloods of Andeans with coastal peoples, of people from Spain with Africans, impossible loves that our parents knew how to defend and flower. So it's and it's really telling. I remember being so struck by this that the first dish on that menu is called la cama indecente, la del amor prohibido, the indecent indecent bed, the one of forbidden love.
1: Wow.
0: So I know. <laughs> So again, I mean this is the colonization, slavery, migration, all of this they're reframed as stories about love and beautiful fusion. Um but there is also a really, really important emphasis on tolerance. And I, th- I think I write about this in the introduction in particular. Um this is a tolerant fusion, a tolerant mestizaje, and this is really significant given the ongoing criminalization of any kind of social protest, from anti-mining protests to manifestations against sexual and gendered violence. Um, in a context where you know intolerant mm-hmm. resentidos sociales, this is a, a term we use, we, we hear so much, are often glossed as dangerous subverses, where indigenous anti-mining activists are represented as terrorists, or arrested, or killed. This can be terrifying, right? So the the um, the consequences of this narrative are really devastating for so many.
1: Yes, definitely. And going on that last thing you mentioned, there's the extractive aspect of the rearticulation of the mestizaje narrative as the gastronomic, this gastronomic revolution values the products being culture, cuisine. They value more the products made by the indigenous people. More than actually values the indigenous population themselves and their agency. You mentioned the, the protests against mines and so many other instances in which they don't value the people themselves, but the things they produce, again, being that culture or cuisine, there's an embrace of, of, the, of these diverse products. There's a diversity of products and people are part of that. They don't really do the same with people in, in a sense, not with diversity as a whole.
0: Yes. No. Absolutely. Um, I mean, yeah. I, in the book, I actually spent a lot of time discussing the ways um, Indigenous peoples have been reframed as producers, as productive neoliberal subjects. Um, their places in their in their fields, right, not in the city. Um, so they're working to cultivate the products that will feed that gastropolitical machine so that restaurants can continue to attract tourists to Lima. The city will welcome them as producers who sell their best products to chefs, who can showcase to tourists and to the world Peru's colorful cultural traditions and biodiversity. But they have to follow the rules, as was made clear at that workshop um, at Mistura. And, but one thing I think your question is really interesting, and I think one thing to, to mention here is that... Um, There is, I think, in this a a distinction between someone like Acurio and Chef Virgilio Martinez, who I also write about in in the book. Um, For Acurio, there is certainly a concern over products, um, but he also still emphasizes, right, the importance of supporting producers, for example, through those chef-producer alliances I mentioned earlier. Of course, I think, and, and as I argue in the book, this is still very much a paternalistic relationship quite literally. I mean, I I argue that Acurio is positioned as the new patron, the benevolent hacendado, right, who cares for his workers. Um, But for Martinez, there is an explicit move away from Acurio's emphasis on fusion and mestizaje. And I think we can maybe talk about this a little bit later. Um, But unlike Acurio, where food represents the diversity that is Peru, for Martinez, his cuisine reflects a desire to literally consume Peru. He cooks ecosystems, that's how he puts it. He emphasizes what he sees as authenticity. And indigeneity is central here, but only in as much as it authenticates and validates his ecological approach to cuisine. Um, Martinez is, is I would say, only interested in products, um, as, as you're saying as well. Um, he's interested in finding unknown quote-unquote unknown products studying them classifying them and making them known then to the world through his world-class restaurants through his labor and, and culinary arts um, I think this is especially exemplified at Central um, his restaurant in Lima which I, I think right now I was watching some things I think it's the most expensive restaurant in Peru um, I think at, so yes at, yeah yeah Uh, Also at Mil in Cusco, um, but especially through his research institute, Mater um, Iniciativa.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. And finally, touching on another aspect of the rearticulation of mestizaje, we mentioned the sanitation of history, but I I also wanted to touch upon uh, something you mentioned, that is the reestablishment of colonial hierarchies. There's the the idea that you mentioned quite, quite clearly of el lugar del indio, the, the place of the indigenous person within this gastronomic project. This has been such a topic that's been so present for so much of Peruvian's Republican, Republican in, in, in brackets history. Uh, as you mentioned, how, how do you uh, analyze this, this idea of el lugar del niño within the gastronomical revolution?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I kind of touched on that a little bit before. Um, basically, one of the ways in which I'm thinking about it is there's always been this concern, as you're saying, with the, the 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 place of the Indian or the problem of the Indian, right? How do we how do what do we do with these people? And one of the things that I've seen very clearly in this revolution is, as I was saying, the reframing, re-narrating of indigenous peoples as uh, agricultural producers, right? Uh, as small like smallholder producers, and so. It, but that and, and it's this move away from um, or at least an attempt to move away from this idea of indigenous peoples as these kind of lazy backward right non-productive um, citizens toward this notion of productive citizens neoliberal citizens um, subjects who are doing something for the country and this is this is I think part of what goes um part of what is behind Akurio in particular, because he is really the one who, who um, spearheaded this idea of the chef-producer alliances and, and talks a lot about the importance of um, recognition, of recognition of, of of producers. But if you think about it, you know, the term indigenous almost never comes up. So it's really this kind of move away from that towards saying, see, these are our brothers or sisters because they are producing, because they are doing something. And importantly, they're doing something. They're part of this... Um, reframing of the nation of peru right of who we are in the in the in the um eyes of the world and so it's about kind of figuring out a new place for them um but that can only happen in 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 this in this way um i was really struck uh apega was the society for gastronomy it's no longer in existence um but they had this video um I'm trying to think back to it, but I, you know, um, June 24th, 1969 was, uh, June 24th is the day it was known as the the day of the Indian. And then with Velasco Alvarado, who I'll talk about later, it became the day of the campesino and Apega as part of this gastronomic revolution had this reformulation of that as the day of the producer, um, so that's also really interesting, this kind of seeming evolution toward kind of uh, placing and, and re- replacing indigenous peoples as producers, as productive kind of neoliberal subjects. And um, in, in my kind of thinking about this, actually, Pablo Delino's work was really, really helpful in thinking about race and, and labor and these long histories of, of the place of indigenous peoples in, in, in the country.
1: Yeah, yeah without, without a doubt. Now, I really wanted to talk to you about as well about the, you calling into question the term post-conflict very early in your book, I, I believe. Uh, very interesting memory. So it, it was this was particularly interesting to me as well because you mentioned it that this, this is another way to cover up or hide the existing violence that still persists, the, the discrimination that still exists in our country. Calling it post-conflict implies that it's over as well. Uh, but it, it has worked as a useful tool for the, for the gastronomic boom to create a narrative that ends with us being a tourist destination that has gone past any sort of conflict or discrimination, Will you tell us a bit more about you questioning this term, your your critical thinking behind this, and how does it fit within the the gastronomic boom boom's narrative?
0: Sure. Yeah. No. This is good. Um, well, I guess uh, put really simply, to my mind, this formulation, this kind of a, a post-conflict is a way to periodize violence, right? It's a way to mark the violence of the conflict with Sendero in particular um, as a moment of exceptional violence. So there's a a before and after. There's before terror and after terror. And this does really important political work. Um, First, I think it ignores the ways those years, as horrible as they were, are in so many ways manifestations of much longer histories of colonial and racial violence. I mean, for indigenous people who had already suffered brutal abuse at the hands of colonial bureaucrats or landowners, um, experiencing violence in the form of senderista rage or military abuse was uh, horrific, um, but not necessarily surprising. Um, and it also diminishes, I think, the multiple ways in which that experience of violence continues today. The afterlives of rape or torture, the ongoing search for the bodies of loved ones lost during the war, Um, and the clear links between the violence of extractive industry or gendered politics and the structural dynamics that made certain bodies and lives more vulnerable than others during the years of terror, this is all part of my critique of the representation of post-conflict Peru. Um, And as you say, in terms of the gastronomic revolution, the formulation is really quite explicit, right? Peru is a nation that has moved, quote, from terror to culinary destination. There's a really fascinating, I don't know if you saw... um, a few years ago, there was a, an ad in the New York Times um, about the generación con calza, the new sort of uh, generation of chefs. And that there's a little um, there's a video and that, a video there embedded that actually does a beautiful job of um, reflecting this sort of the, the whole idea of fusion as this beautiful fusion. But also there's a story um, about these kind of generations of, of chefs. And there, that's, that's, that's also the, the formulation of moving, like we we used to be this kind of country mired in violence and we are now um, at this peaceful kind of uh, cosmopolitan modern destination, right? So, so that formulation is really clear there. And that's also another really interesting text to, to think with along these lines.
1: I want to go now and go over the book chapter by chapter, part by part, if that's, that's fine. I wanted to ask you first about part one of the book Uh, That's called Structures of Accumulation, which contains three chapters itself. And here you look at gastropolitics from above, Uh, more specifically through the analysis of two key figures that we've mentioned before, Gaston Acurio and Virgilio Martinez. You also look at Mistura, but I'm particularly interested in, in the analysis of these two chefs that are the face, the key figures that we mentioned before, of what you argue should be seen as a settler colonial project of racial restoration and indigenous erasure what did you find in their performance and engagement of race and capital and cuisine, and more generally uh, their engagement of these uh, topics? Yeah.
0: Uh, okay, yeah, this is a great question. There's so much There's so much to say here. Yes. Um, but now, uh, let's see. I, I, well, I devoted a chapter, as you're saying, uh, to Acurio um, and a chapter to Martinez, in part because they were such crucial figures in this moment, um, but also because of the distinct ways in which each chef and their particular projects reflect, I think, a very different kind of engagement with race and indigeneity. Um, as I argue in the book, we could think about a project, um, as we've kind of already discussed a little bit, as one that's really focused in part on the reframing of mestizaje, Peruvian food, and Peru itself are products of a beautiful consensual tolerant mixture of race and culture. But for Martinez, As we were saying, food is not representative of Peruvian cultural and racial mixture. It should not showcase the mixture of tradition. Food is Peru. His his food, I should say, his food, his dishes is Peru. And he recreates ecosystems on a plate, literally. He serves you clay and bark, rocks and algae. Um, So his project is about showcasing the real Peru, the authentic Peru. And in this performance of authenticity, um, as I was saying, indigeneity really matters. Because this project, I think, is one of reclamation of authentic, deep, indigenous Peru. Um, So in a way, then, we could think of Martinez as offering, you know, if if we're thinking of of Acurio as reformulating mestizaje, we could think of Martinez as reformulating indigenismo, right? Which which, um, is a political and cultural movement of elites who profess to center the Indian but they were always speaking for indigenous peoples because they were thought to not be able to speak for them for themselves. Um, so that's one kind of distinction. Another important distinction, um, as I said earlier, is that while um, Acurio is still, I think operating within this kind of colonial paternalistic framework, he, I, mean, <laughs> I don't, I, it's hard to, but I think, I think he at least seemingly genuinely cares about producers. right? He, he emphasizes fair trade He emphasizes the importance of recognizing the hard work of farmers, um, the importance of supporting them through these chef producer alliances. What actually happens on the ground, that's a a different story. But he seems still to be invested in particular particular forms of of social inclusion and justice, even as he's still also invested in particular racial orders, like the benevolent patron, the good, happy plant producer, um, works his land and sells his best products to chefs. And I'll, I'll, I'll... just pause for a little bit here because that's important, right, in terms of thinking about indigenous food sovereignty, the idea that the you, you work the land and the best products are the ones that you give away to, to the chefs and not the ones that you feed your family. That has all sorts of different implications. Um, so I think that I just kind of wanted to, to say that. But back to Acurio, I, regardless of all this, I, I think he also he does seem to, to care about about them, but also about democratizing cuisine right he, he i think his is a national movement um and a great example is his television series aventura culinaria where he travels throughout the country showcasing the products and dishes of many different people and businesses this is about supporting you know them getting people to notice their 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 products um so even as Acurio's revolution is looking outward and, and he still talks a lot about the importance of promoting Peruvian cuisine around the globe and um, and enticing tourists to come to Peru to eat and fall in love with Peru, just as importantly, I think it matters for Acurio that Peruvians love their food, that Peruvians fall in love with their country again. I'm not sure that Martinez cares if Peruvians like his food or not. I mean, I, I, I won't mean to be, I, to be dismissive, but um, I find this really interesting, this contrast, because I I find Martinez's project to be unapologetically elite, right? He has positioned himself as the explorer. And I I do, I unpack this a lot more in, in, in chapter two of my book. There's just so much to say, but, um, he really does he, he presents himself as as this kind of explorer even like the images of him looking outward gazing spe- stepping on the mountain and um anyway uh, he he discovers right these are all very colonial terms by the way he he explores he discovers the these unknown ingredients and then he makes them known to those who can afford to travel to and eat at his restaurants which is really important i mean this is interesting too right the kind of emphasis on this hyper-local ecological um, work and then people are flying thousands and thousands of miles from all over to to experience this like ecological um, project. Um, But anyway, um, one thing that I I really want to highlight here is that in order to discover these so-called unknown ingredients, Martinez needs indigenous knowledge. He needs indigenous people, right? He relies on them to learn about the products and cooking techniques that then he uses. But then he says he uses the science and research that is exemplified through his research institute, Mater Iniciativa, to legitimate that knowledge. So it's at Mater that his team decides which ingredients are profitable and then takes them to his restaurant to craft the dishes that travelers, you know, from all over the world come to experience. Um, so again, I mean, this is, this is really brilliant. It's a brilliant way of showcasing the importance of indigeneity, of indigenous products and knowledge, while at the same time, invisibilizing that knowledge, marking him and his team as those who are the only ones able to translate deep Peru for the world. So, um, again, another text to kind of think with. And for those familiar with the Netflix show, um, Chef's Table, the episode with Martinez is fantastic. And it really, I think, does a great job of reflecting this beautifully. Um, I, uh, of course, I read it really, I mean, I watched it really, really critically. And I do offer a little bit of a close reading um, of that episode in, in, in the book, along with some of his recipes and restaurants. Um, but it's worth it's worth watching and, and, and thinking um, about this Martinez in, in, in that way. Um so there there's there's so much more I could say, but I think I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it at that for
1: now. <laughs> yes, definitely. There's definitely a lot to unpack and all, all our listeners who want to know more about that, they can the book is very thorough and it gives a lot of details into both men and also On Mistura in the first part of the book. Going now to the second part of the book, you explore non-hegemonic narratives of gastropolitics. I mentioned earlier that I really enjoyed this approach to the topic, as these smaller stories tend to be forgotten when we only do a top-down examination. These smaller narratives help us understand this phenomenon in a more subtle way and serve as counter-narratives. Can you tell us more about these narratives, especially that of emerging and then chefs and producers?
0: Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, no, I, and I think actually this is really really important. Um, and I really enjoyed writing this part of the book. I think more so than the first part. Um, in, in the book, I try to make it clear that I'm not writing the story of the gastronomic revolution, but rather offering a few of the many stories that I think make up this really fascinating and multi-layered phenomenon. Um, I'm trying to think critically about some of the stories that make it up. Acurio, Martinez, Mistura seem like central components of that top-down dimension, but these narratives are always more complicated and always open up space for counter narratives or alternative stories, as you were saying. So this is why I thought it was really crucial to, to open this up. Um, and I wanted, I, I from the beginning, I knew that I wanted to write about the ways some producers experienced the boom, um, the gastronomic boom, as well as those young people, for example, who are training to be chefs or waiters or cooks, um, but I was not, for example expecting to write about the young chef Palmito Ocampo. Um, chapter four where I write about Ocampo and a producer who I call Aida and who works with Acudio and takes advantage of the gastronomic revolution. that chapter was really really surprising for me to write. Um, Aida, uh, this producer was formidable like after talking with her I knew I knew I had to include her voice and her perspective. And, but actually, she also made it really clear to me in our conversation that she expected me to include her voice, um, to incorporate her words into my writing, which I think is really important. Um, and as I was trying to figure out what this chapter would do and how I would frame it, I revisited my interview with her and her comments were just so incredibly rich and nuanced and her analysis was so sophisticated that I thought I had I should write the chapter around her. Um, and as I kept thinking about Uh, The way, and especially thinking with her, right, about the ways um, that as an indigenous producer, she navigates the gastronomic boom and relations with Acurio and the Peruvian Society for Gastronomy, I started to wonder about how others working within the gastropolitical machine navigate and contend with the contradictions of this boom, the contradictions, for example, between the claims of social inclusion and the perpetuation of particular colonial stories. So this is what led me to think more about that new generation of chefs that I, that I just mentioned, the so-called Generación con Causa, which is a group of over 50 young chefs who um, claim to be committed to moving a curious revolution forward um, and foregrounding the uh, social justice issues like um, climate change, biodiversity, malnutrition, obesity, um, and, and lots of other, other issues. Um, Many of these chefs are men and women from elite families. So reproducing the kind of profile of most celebrity chefs uh, in Peru. But a handful had a different story. And I stumbled upon Palmiro Ocampo in particular because he had a really intriguing television show, Cocina con Causa, which totally threw me when I watched it for the first time. Um, Many of their episodes are on YouTube. And I remember watching the first episode and I was expecting to find the usual dynamic of you know young elite chefs telling indigenous peoples or migrants living in peri-urban regions of lima how to eat what to eat how to live um i expected them and the show to reproduce a version of this kind of civilizing mission that i talked about with the workshop at mistura but what i found instead was was like what i saw as a subversive hidden message in these stories and um and i found in ocampo An example of the kind of push and pull Aida was performing in her own engagements with the gastronomic machine. Um, Ocampo's family is from Andahuaylas, a highland department in Peru, and uh, along with Ayacucho, I think this was one of the hardest hit during the war as well. His grandparents and his father migrated from the highlands to Lima. So his family makes up part of the wave of migration that so many Peruvian elites see as part of the problem, the gastronomic revolution needs to fix. So that's interesting in itself. His culinary work has foregrounded tackling waste, um, utilizing every part of every ingredient he uses in his kitchen. Uh, In fact, I think his nickname for a while was El Chef uh, Reciclador, Recycling Chef. Um, But his principal focus now is working with women and communal kitchens um, in the marginal sectors of Lima through an NGO that he co-founded with his wife. It's called Cori. Um, I could say a lot more about him and about Aida But I'll just say that their stories are really, really fascinating entry points into how people can both take advantage of this moment of culinary prestige and critique that same moment and movement at the same time. Um, And I guess I'll just add, uh, it's it's just really, it's fascinating. And and I think, you know, for me, it was also a way of complicating um, that top-down narrative and complicating these hegemonic stories. Um, And I I also, I just want to end with... A note about the importance for me, um, as I was writing this book, I kept thinking about this. It was uh, the importance for me of highlighting resilience. I really did not want to write a book or tell a story that only emphasized the harms and violence enacted by the seemingly benevolent gastronomic movement. I wanted to remind readers that people, indigenous people in particular, um, do not just bear the brunt of violence. They do not just survive. Right? They thrive. They move through the world with joy and creativity, and they make possible alternative futures, I think, for all of us.
1: Mm-hmm. Definitely. I think that's very important to highlight as well. Uh, now moving to the second part of the book, uh, the second part of, the, of this chapter, I'm sorry. You also dedicate a couple of chapters to guinea pigs, which are very important figures, not only to the gastronomic booms, but also in the lives of many Peruvians. You mentioned Elizabeth Lino's work that touches on non-human suffering, which is something that you examine with, with the guinea pigs themselves. Can you tell us a bit more about this non-human suffering and how it relates to gastropolitics and the, the culinary revolution as a whole?
0: Yes. Um, yeah. Thank you. I, as I mentioned, when we started our conversation, I thought my whole book was going to be about guinea pigs and other animals. Um, but even as I shifted focus and began to write more intentionally about gastropolitics, I knew I wanted to maintain some discussion of the animals and, and plants um, at the center of so much of our food, even if we don't usually talk about this explicitly. Guinea pigs seemed especially significant. I mean, as you say, they have been an important fixture in Peruvian history, and especially for indigenous families in the Andes for centuries. But I also wanted to call attention to the fact that alongside the gastronomic boom, there was also what is known as... As el boom Cui, or the boom in guinea pig production. Chapter five focuses on this guinea pig boom and on the animal as figure and flesh, is how I kind of think about it, um, on the material and symbolic dimensions and impacts of the use of these animals, and especially the intensification of the commercialization of guinea pigs. Um, I was really fascinated by the explosion of Cui production seminars, conferences, businesses, and how these were in some ways strategies for improved livelihoods used by many, many living in marginalized parts of Lima. Um, But I was also uh, really fascinated by the ways in which this move has reinscribed gendered power dynamics. For example, in this move from living with and caring for guinea pigs in rural settings, where women were primary caretakers, men are usually now those heading food production businesses in the city. So I also look at the discourses of guinea pig researchers and producers, um, discourses which I think reproduce and enact violence against female bodies, especially those bodies of female guinea pigs used in reproduction. And I also spend some time exploring the way the guinea pig appears in high-end menus and in chef narratives about the so-called move from savage to sophisticated cuisine, which actually was a phrase that I heard repeatedly when I was doing field work, especially in the early years um, of the boom. So in terms of why I include these chapters in a section titled, Narratives from the Edge, um, I, I really, I wanted us, I wanted to push us to consider other than human lives in our discussion of gastropolitics. Gastronomy necessarily involves entanglements with other than human lives and beings from plants to animals to land. It necessarily involves violence against other beings, and we don't often stop to think about that. So when we begin to learn about the emotional and intellectual capacities of these other beings, such as guinea pigs, for example, um, we can really, I think, begin to understand that these animals are also communicating, right? Like in their vocalizations, in their body language, we can read fear, terror, sadness. So, in other words, these are also some of the narratives from the edge that I find matter in our discussions about the many stories that make up the gastronomic revolution. Um, you know, I want to bring Ocampo actually back into into the conversation because um, in the book I write about a TED Ducuy talk that he gave a few years ago, um, which is really again another text that's worth worth checking out. Um, but but in that in that talk, he talks about gastronomy as violently wasteful. Um, And as he does this, he's talking uh, about gastronomy in ways. He shows this image of a mutilated potato. There's no other way to think about it. It's just this image of this mutilated potato on the screen behind him. And the potato is full of holes that have been made with a melon baller or something like that. Um, And he says this is this is how students at culinary schools around the world practice precision cuts with the potato, right, with a quintessential Peruvian product. Um, And once they're done practicing, the potato is thrown away. So he does this, Palmiro does this, to speak to the amount of waste involved in culinary practice. But thinking with indigenous epistemologies here, we can understand the potato as a being that is also alive. In a different way than the guinea pig, of course, but still alive, right? And Palmiro alludes to this later in that talk. So for me, um, this connects with chapter six uh, in my discussion, which is actually a very, very personal discussion. That was a really difficult um, piece for me to write. But uh, the chapter six of my discussion uh, of an encounter that I had when I visited a guinea pig breeding farm while I was pregnant. And I witnessed witnessed, um, the owner pick up a sick, pregnant guinea pig and toss her outside of her enclosure onto the dirt floor, leaving her to die a slow, painful death. So this, in a way, you can think of it as simply the cost of business. But what happens when we open ourselves up to thinking with that guinea pig, to think with the violence that's at the heart of mm-hmm. these processes?
1: Yeah, that's definitely quite striking as well. And I thought I thought this chapter was very, very interesting as well. I like the concept of, of non-human suffering that you mentioned from Elisabeth Lino's work and your work as well.
0: Yeah, yeah I didn't get to talk about elizabeth <laughs> sorry. Uh, but yeah, I would also really encourage listeners to check out Elisabeth Lino's work. She's, she's incredible. She's just an amazing performance artist and thinker um, there's just so much to say <laughs> about her, but I, I would just encourage you yeah. to check out her. It also her work.
1: ties up quite nicely because it, the, the book is, it gives it this uh, idea from a perspective um, of the animal. This the suffering, uh, the feeling of, of one, which is the, the subject of the <laughs> gastronomic boom. But uh, just to finish the interview up, uh, and this is a question I like to ask all, all the interviews, interviews I have on the show. And although the gastronomic group has leveled off a bit from the heights of the, of the mid two thousands, I think the answer might still be very interesting. But how do you think your book speaks to the present state of Peruvian society?
0: Uh, this is a really <laughs> hard question. Um, COVID, you know, I, I can't, you, I can't not mention. COVID has changed so much. Um, I have read that at least half of all restaurants in Peru closed due to the pandemic, Um, not to mention the fact, obviously, that Peru led the world in per capita deaths due to COVID. Um, I was just in Lima in February, the first time in two years, which is a long time for me not to be there. Um, But I was really struck, and during one of the kind of family lunches that we had, I was really struck by a comment that one of my aunts made. She's young, and she works outside the house, um, and she has two older boys, and she's always relied on hiring someone to cook for her family. But with COVID, she said she could not have anyone in the house. And so she had to learn how to cook. Um, and this is, by the way, really unusual because most of the women in my family are the primary cooks in the house, including myself. Um, but anyway, it was interesting. But uh, she didn't enjoy it. Like she did not like it. She did not like to cook. But she said the one thing she said was interesting was that she was really grateful for all the cooking guides and especially Gastona Curio's recipe guides, like the ones that appear, you know, in Comercio, um, in, right, the supplements. So that was interesting. Um which well, is an interesting link to this broader story, but I think more generally in the book, I think one of the tries I tried to one of the things I tried to do um, is offer a critique of the celebratory glow of the gastronomic revolution, the demand that we move forward, that we not dwell on the past and that we narrate this happy, loving, multicultural nation without taking stock of the ongoing forms of violence that surround us, without remembering the legacies and afterlives of terror colonial and otherwise. So perhaps this is uh, one way in which the book speaks to this present moment. Um, in our hopes to move beyond COVID, to move away from the horror of so many deaths and to return to the days of culinary prestige and supposed abundance, we might think about the dark sides that remain all too present. Like COVID exploded, I think, the myth that the gastronomic boom had erased inequalities and tensions and antagonisms. So in our rush to move beyond this moment, that's not return to any kind of normalcy but rather use this moment to think critically and carefully and find alternative ways of living. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. I think that's a very, very good answer to that question as well. And well, before we finish anything else you might want to answer, you might want to add about the book, perhaps something we haven't addressed uh, so far.
0: Um, You know, maybe, maybe just one thing, uh, and this may be actually one more way in which the book speaks to this moment. Um, I wanted to say a little bit about the ways that the ghosts of Sendero and but also General Velasco Alvarado, who I mentioned very briefly earlier, how they continue to haunt Peru. Um, in the book, I write about the gastronomic revolution as responding to the years uh, of terror, as I've already mentioned. But it also, I think, responds to the legacy of Velasco and in particular his agrarian reform. Um, I know I think you, you recently interviewed Anna Kant and her book offers a terrific exploration of Velasco and the reform Um but very, very quickly, Velasco was a left-leaning general who took power in a military coup in 1968. He implemented many far-reaching social reforms, but his agrarian reform of 1969 was perhaps the most controversial and the most impactful. Um, some scholars compare the reform with expropriated lands from landowners and returned um, and uh, with, yeah, with expropriation and the return of, of the land to, to those who worked it. And, um, uh, they compare this reform with the abolition of slavery. So the social and political fallout of this moment still haunts society, and in particular, I think, elite discourses and experiences of life in Lima. And in the book, I argue that the ghost of Velasco is very much present in the discourses of Acurio, for example. moved his flagship restaurant to what used to be the old hacienda of, of san isidro and very explicitly restoring the house and rewriting history through the restaurant's website so this is i think one more example Uh, In which Acurio's project of racial restoration, reclaiming space as the patron and repositioning indigenous producers and those who work the land is, is, you know, very much kind of uh, responding to this kind of legacy of of Velasco. Um, And moreover, the recent presidential election of Pedro Castillo, a Quechua speaking farmer, teacher, union leader, has really intensified the anxieties that I've been discussing around race and indigeneity. And I think also has called into question the idyllic picture of a happy, tolerant, multicultural Peru. So, given the current political moment and the polarization that we see through the figure of Castillo, but also Fujimori, right? It's is really interesting to think with and from the frame of haunting and ghosts, which is something that I kind of want to do in in the book. Yes, definitely.
1: Now, before you finish, I think it would be useful for the re- readers too and the listeners to know what new projects you're working on right now. What a, if you have anything planned? You can tell us a bit more about that.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, well, first I'm, I'm trying to, I've, i I'll be working on the the book, uh, the Spanish version of the book. I've got the translation and um, I'm hoping to be able to publish that soon. So that hopefully will be happening, but I'm starting, I've actually just started work on a, a new project. I, I started right before COVID, but then I haven't obviously been able to do anything. So um, so I'm just getting back into it. And it's a, it's a, it's a hard project. It's, it's basically I'm trying to think through the impact of political violence in Peru on, on animals. Um, and other than human beings, too. So rivers, glaciers, lands. And I am starting from the indigenous testimonies um, collected by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. These are over 17,000 um, testimonies. Uh, So it's a lot, Um, but I remember, I mean, this is something actually that I've been thinking about for a long time, but I just have not been able to, I I didn't think it was the right time. I remember in 2002, I was in Cusco and I attended one of the public audiencias of the the TRC. Um, And I was really, really struck by the ways that so many people, when they were asked about their experiences of violence, they talked about the theft or mutilation or killing of their animals or the burning of their lands, um, as really, really significant dimensions of that violence that they experienced, experienced. So I was, I was really fascinated by that. Um, and again, 2002, it just felt like not the right time. It was a little too raw. Um, but I've been thinking about it ever since. And so now that's, that's the focus of, of my new work. And I've um, been talking to a lot of folks about this and, People seem to be really, really supportive. Um, I was just in Peru as I mentioned last month, and I started exploring some of the art guys and testimonies. Um, and it was—I'm finding a lot. I mean, it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's hard um, work, but I'm finding it to be a really important story to tell to kind of think more about the impact of all of this on on other than human life um, as well. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, we're looking forward to that, Marilena. Thank you very much again for joining us here to talk about your wonderful book, uh, Gastropolitics and the Spectre of Race, Source of Capital, Culture, and Coloniality in Peru. Thank you for joining us here at the New Books Network in Latin American Studies.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Kenneth. It's been really wonderful um, talking with you and just sharing ideas.
1: Yeah, it's been a wonderful conversation as well. And I uh, would uh, recommend for everyone out there to get the book. We did this very interesting. It's a very uh, unique and original perspective on, on gastropolitics. And I think you would all enjoy it. But, well, that's That's all from us here today. Have a good day.